This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, book critic David Yellen and author Matthew Zapruder discuss how reading can function as an act of engaged citizenship and resistance. This event was recorded on October 2nd, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. That's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. This is going to be a great conversation. Um, I'm an old friend of David's. We have taught together. We've uh, talked a lot about writing together. David is a inspiration to me as a writer. We're, we're um, I guess, we're peers in a certain kind of way, like, yeah, like, like uh, sort of generationally. Um, had very different careers and lives as writers, but uh, met as in a teaching situation and. I've been a great admirer of his work. And this is a beautiful book. Um, he's holding my copy of it, actually. Um, you want it back? <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just didn't want to seem like I showed up without it. No, I, 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 I showed up without it. You did. Um, the Lost Art of Reading. It's a beautiful book. It's a book about reading. It's about family. It's about culture. It's about time. It's about memory. It's about resistance and many, many, many other things. And so we're going to have a conversation about it and then, It'd be great to talk among us, answer questions. But first, I thought it'd be really nice to hear David read a bit from the book so you can get a sense of his voice. He's a beautiful prose writer, and so I'd love to hear him. So I'm going to read a little chunk. Um, so just to set it up, so this book was first published in 2010, um, and part of the point of the book at that time <clears throat> before I realized where we were heading, um, was to talk about reading um, as a way of concentrating in some way or slowing things down. Not that reading has to have a purpose. I think art should, you know, have no purpose if that's what it, it has. But, um, or it's, it is its own purpose. But, there, you know, at that point in 2009, 2010, when I was starting to think about and write the book, I was kind of confronting my own distraction. And I was trying to think about what that meant. I was a lifelong reader, had always defined the world through reading and was finding it difficult to just quiet myself down to read. And so towards the end of the book, I come to this idea of sort of reading as a kind of form of quiet resistance. At that time in 2010, I just meant resistance to the general bullshit of the culture. Um, but a about a year and a half ago, um, they, my editor, a guy named Gary Luke uh, at Sasquatch Books, emailed me and said, you know, I've been thinking about that quiet resistance idea. Would you be interested in revisiting the book through the filter of what we now are thinking about in terms of resistance? Um, and there's a lot of politics in the original version of the book, particularly um, Obama, Sarah Palin, the, the, the debate over ACA was going on when I was writing it. Um, and so I said to Gary, I'd be happy to revisit it as long as I don't have to reread it, because the idea of rereading eight-year or nine-year-old prose makes me want to put 
spikes in my eyes. Um, so I'm going to have used the same rule here. Um, I wrote a new introduction and an afterward that kind of framed it, and I'm going to read from the new introduction um, because the idea of reading aloud prose I wrote eight or nine years ago also makes me feel like putting spikes in my eyes. And so I'm going to start in the middle. Like what you know, the, I, I began to think about, or I'm starting in the middle of the introduction. Um, what I began to think about in terms of trying to write the introduction and trying to reframe some of the questions that the book was asking for the contemporary moment um, was really about the shattering of collective narrative and the sort of um, the rise of, of utterly conditional narrative, whether in terms of, uh, you know, on all sides and the kind of the lack of common, um, of any kind of common ground or the lack of desire for common ground. And I, and I am someone as a writer and as a critic who's very um, focused on the notion of the conditionality of narrative, all narrative is conditional. So I'm going to start with that, um, with that idea. And yet every narrative is conditional. Isn't that what reading has to tell us? Every narrative is a slice of a larger whole. All stories, if continued far enough, end in death. Ernest Hemingway notes in Death in the Afternoon. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. He's right. Although it's also the case that most stories don't continue far enough, which means we have no choice but to engage with them as part of a continuum. Those narratives, they exist on either end of the page before the action opens and after it is done. The fullest characters are the ones I can imagine, we can imagine walking around in the world. I think of Lucia Berlin and Tilly Olson, of Grace Paley and Gina Berrio. Listen, my dear alones, the latter implores us in the deft and brilliant women in their beds over there across the city. Do you remember how each time you lay yourself down in a bed, you wondered if even for a moment what you were doing there? And what about the beds you thought you'd chosen yourself? Do they now seem chosen for you? Destiny's hand patting them down. This is a description not of closure, but rather of closure's opposite, which is the existential tension or one of them at the heart of literature, the illusion that narrative can offer fulfillment when fulfillment is at best a fleeting reverie. As readers, then, we occupy an ongoing state of suspension, as readers and as humans, too. In this world, Zadie Smith wrote not long after the 2016 election, there is only incremental progress. Only the willfully blind can ignore that the history of human existence is simultaneously the history of pain, of brutality, murder, mass extinction, every form of venality and cyclical horror. No land is free of it. No people are without their blood stain. No tribe entirely innocent. But there is still this redeeming matter of incremental progress. It might look small to those with apocalyptic perspectives, but to she, who not so long ago could not vote or drink from the same water fountain as her fellow citizens or marry the person she chose or live in a certain neighborhood, such incremental progress feels enormous. What Smith is addressing is an essential conundrum. We can only live in our own time. Even more, we cannot take anything for granted. It may be true, as Martin Luther King averred in a February 26, 1965 sermon at Temple Israel of Hollywood, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yet such a process is neither passive nor foregone. King gave his sermon only a few weeks before Selma, tracing his own moral arc across the span of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, 
The march he led continued from Montgomery to the Voting Rights Act, signed into law in August of that year. In every way that matters, this too is a narrative, one that stands in opposition to that of Charlottesville. Indeed, it is the very narrative the neo-Nazis sought to erase or to invalidate there, that white supremacists and their enablers seek to invalidate still. I think about this all the time now in a culture where the blurring of boundaries, the subjectivity of perspective have become weaponized. I am a relativist, moral, aesthetic, intellectual. I don't believe in the innate authority of anything. And yet what do I do with a society that appears to have slipped the bounds of reason altogether in which a sizable percentage of the population is willing to believe, say, that collusion is a deep deep state conspiracy or that during her tenure as Secretary of State, the most recent Democratic nominee for president approved a pay-to-play deal to transfer uranium to a Russian mining company called Uranium One. That none of this is true that none of it ever happened, is, of course, beside the point. Fake news, the president intones, even as he pursues it like a piece of public policy. I believe the state should be resisted wherever it encroaches, Dennis Johnson argues in his 1995 essay, The Militia in Me, written in reaction to the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. But the bombers of that building will demonstrate for us something we don't want demonstrated. There is no trick to starting a revolution. Simply open fire on the state, the state will oblige by firing back. What's harder is to win a revolution, and the only victory worthy of the name will be a peaceable one. Do you want me to stop there? I'm getting tired of hearing my own voice. You did want me to read this one thing about, um, yeah, so I'll skip a little bit. Um, I talk about Reagan and the Ku Klux Klan and Philadelphia, Mississippi. Um, And, um, okay. I don't mean to trivialize our situation by referring to it through the lens of narrative, but rather to contextualize. This is how the world works. First, we tell ourselves a story, then we dream our way inside it as a way of bringing it to life. It's why we have to be careful about the narratives we evoke or create, because they are bound by or they bind the limits of what we can imagine, the limits of our ability to think. The reason books and reading remain essential is because they are still the most effective mechanism by which to crack open the universe. Think about it. When we read, we soul travel in the sense that we join or enter the consciousness of another human. We empathize, we have to, because our experience is enlarged. The purpose of literature, Reza Aslan wrote in 2011, is to provide a window into other worlds, only connect in other words, which is as it ever was a key intent of narrative, although we must be willing to listen to one another for such a for such a process to take hold. This is the problem with fake news, which has become pervasive precisely because it doesn't ask anything of us other than to have our preconceptions validated. We don't need to think or be confronted. All we need to do is be affirmed. Still, what is the purpose of news if not to inform us and in so doing stir us out of our complacency? The same, I want to say, applies to the whole art of writing, which involves asking questions that cannot be answered, embracing complexity. This is a difficult world, and I don't mean only in regard to policy, although many mornings my news feed is too much to bear. It's a difficult world in which to be human, in which to try to live with integrity. That's what they're counting on, the purveyors of fake news as much as the politicians and the pundits, normalizing that which should not be normalized. It's not the facts that frighten them. Facts we all know can be spun. It's the inquiry. I'll stop with that. I'll give you the book back if you need it. Yeah. Um, Well, 
the David spoke in kind of a self-deprecating way about the book, but actually, you know, and, or sort of put down the idea of rereading this old prose. But the fact is, is, you know, I had read the book when it first came out and I, I reread it in preparation for this event. And it's just such a lovely read. Um, you can hear, you know, in the way he talks, just how beautiful the prose is and the framing of the, uh, the introduction and afterward, of course, brings it into the, uh, terrifying present, but um, there's the seeds of that understanding in the in the in the heart and bulk of the book, and um, you know we'll get to this. But there's I mentioned you know the, the 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 actual kind of impulse of the book comes from a conversation that you had with your son Noah when he's reading The Great Gatsby, and he declares that reading literature is dead. Literature right? is dead. Yeah. Yeah, which is like just you know kids have this amazing way of saying like the perfect thing to their parent, yeah. the perfectly like devastating thing. I mean, you know, that's yeah. the right thing to say to you, right? You know, perfect it's like- thing. It's the best thing he could have <laughs> ever said. Yeah. It's like they, you know, I did it to my dad too. Right. And my mom, right. they, they, you know, they know exactly which ribs to slip the knife right. in between. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we'll get to that. But anyway, but it's a beautiful, uh, compelling read. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want to let, him get away with denigrating the the bulk of the book and no, no, no. I appreciate it. and I will just say I was only talking from the point of view of me no, the, no, me the writer um, you know because I think every writer is aware of um, the flaws in their own books or what they well, perceive we to be the flaws about that in their own before, books. You know, we've both begun new writing projects and we're and I know there are writers in this room. I probably everybody in this room is a writer, is my guess, and it's that feeling of beginning something is really. Um, horrible <laughs> because it's sort of like this, you know, I mean, it's exciting, but it's also like, Oh God, like this is, you know, you know, and then the sort of coming back to it was probably a kind of mirror other side of the mirror experience with that. Yeah. Right? I mean, again, I was, I, I, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, also practically, I didn't want to um, go in and change the old book because I knew the first edition was going to go out of print. So this was going to be the only available edition. So I, you know, I am being slightly self-deprecating because I do like the book. Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to exist in that form. Um, so the, one of the creative challenges of doing it, and it's always, it's always interesting when someone else sort of proposes an idea to you. Cause the question is, do I want to, you know, do I want to do this? Why do I want to do it? How much do I really want to do it? How do I make it kind of creatively viable for myself? Um, so one of the creative challenges became how do I enlarge or expand this book in a way that does speak to the present moment without kind of altering or invalidating what the book was so that you can kind of have both, you kind of get that double vision, hopefully. Or, yeah. you know. No, I mean, it comes, it comes organically out of the main concern of the book, which is really to think about, you know, what, how our sense of reading and our sense of literature, or relationship to books and even our relationship to language and storytelling it's has changed because of really because of technology that was sort of more i think the like that was a lot of the heart of the book yeah. and now of course that relates to other things that have happened you know since 2016 so right so i thought technology was going to just be a um challenge to our ability to read i didn't realize technology was going to destroy democracy yeah well so. the people who have the office buildings around here didn't realize that either um, it was convenient for them to imagine that they were neutral uh, forces in this 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 process but it turns out that um behavior is ethical i know surprise surprise who would have who would have thought that 
uh, exerting immense influence on society had ethical ramifications. You know, it's so funny to listen to Zuckerberg and those guys talk where they're like, you know, they're so shocked that there would be ethics involved. Well, that's what ethics is, right? Um, so, but I want to, I want to stop for a second because in a recent interview that you did, I think it was with, 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 uh, uh, Dina Lenny. Yeah. Um, you talked about how quickly the discussions of this book become about politics in our current moment or whatever. Right. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I feel like I've been in a lot of public events, either on this side of the mic or on the other. And they seem to have become like Nate Silver podcasts, like really fast, like everybody expressing their opinions about like what's going to happen in the midterms and like how horrible everything is. So I'd like to try to put that off for a little bit, at least before we get into bashing, you know, the monstrous situation that we're facing right now. Um, and talk first about, um, to back up in a way, um, to the title of the book itself, The Lost Art of Reading. Um, why is reading an art? Can you, can you, can you talk a about that? Good question. Um, I'd love <laughs> to talk about that. Question, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. Really? Yeah. God, <laughs> I mean, that's so that, obvious. That is... It was so obvious no one would ask it. But, yeah. Why is reading an yeah. um, I think reading, reading is an art because I think I, there's a lot of reasons why. Okay. So I think first of all, reading is performative. Um, there's, I, 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 as you can tell from the little sample that I read, I love to quote writers. Um, I used to keep notebooks of quotes when I was a kid. Um, and so, you know, that paid off when I wasn't paying attention in school, I was writing down all these quotes. I got to use that as an adult, but Kurt Vonnegut once said, in an interview that um, literature is the only art in which the audience performs the score. And I love that idea. I just love that idea. I love that idea partly because I'm a failed wannabe musician, so I love the idea that I get to perform a score um, or that what I'm writing could possibly be a score. So that's, that's one thing. But it also speaks to the idea that reading, like all art, is, is a collaborative process. It's not the artist or the writer telling us a story or presenting an image or um, a set of images or sounds to us, it doesn't actually come to life until we step inside of it and kind of inhabit it for ourselves in some way. And so that transference, I think, is really, really interesting and really important. Um, it's, and it is a dual transference. Right? Our presence brings the book to life, but in some way we're also allowing the book to possess us. We inhabit the book, but the book inhabits us or the writer's voice inhabits us. And so that to me is very creative. So there's a, the reader brings, there's a large element of reader creativity that goes in, in terms of patience, in terms of critical thinking, in terms of voice and imagination. And so I do think of it. And I think also you have to learn how to do it in a way that reminds me, not learn how to do it technically, but learn how to do it creatively. I think all, um, all readers are creative readers in a certain sense. They're kind of carving out or we're kind of carving out an aesthetic through what we read that is not dissimilar from the aesthetic that an artist is carving out as they're making the work. Yeah. Um, I have the advantage of having thought about this question in advance and, um, it, but it came out of reading the book and one thing that, but one thing that occurs to me from your, remarks that you just made is that, you know, in a way people have this fantasy of art that it's like done into a vacuum. It's made into silence or a vacuum, but that's never true. Like anybody who's made any kind of art knows that it's done in relation to something, 
even if that something is purely one's own history or self that they bring to the act of making the art. So, you know, there is an art to reading because you are bringing yourself in relation to this thing and you're making a new kind of consciousness out of it, but people don't really think of it that way. They, But maybe if they thought of it more as an art, they would get more out of it. Well, and I you think it's I mean? also what you're saying about making the art. It's like, you know, we do have that sense that, you know, the artist exists in some bubble or my aunt once said to me when I was in my twenties, you know, you artists live in magic caves. I was like, really? Cause there's like no money in the magic wish, cave and you know, like, cave I can't do anything. You know? <laughs> do you have to pay rent in the magic cave? I don't know. Like, like, where great. is this magic cave? I'll <laughs> move there awesome. right now, you know? <laughs> right. But, you know, but basically it's like, you know, all everybody's, you know, it, I'm, I was always as a, you know, I always, and I still am interested in like the real stories of how artists live, you know, like what they do, like, what are the jobs? You know, Nathaniel West working as a night clerk in a hotel in New York in the 30s before he moved to Hollywood. So he would have time to write on the night shift. Faulkner working in the post office famously, right? When he quit the post office job, he said "My maybe my favorite line in the history of American literature. Um, I refuse to be at the beck and call of every son of a bitch with, with the money for a two-cent stamp, right? But that was, you know, that's like practical, right? He took that job because it would allow him to write. And then as anybody who ever worked a job because it allowed them to write. He had deep resentment to the people who actually wanted him to do the job. Right. <laughs> you know, so I'm always interested in how art is positioned as part of the real world, right? Artists are real people living in the real world, wrestling with reality, all of the same reality as everybody else. And so how do, how do those circumstances filter into not just the way the artist carries themselves in the world, but also what they're actually making their art about, you know? And so I think that that opens up that question of the conversation. The artist may be first is in conversation with the world and then creates a work that's open for the reader or the listener or the audience to enter into and be in conversation with the artist and the world, you know? And I think what's implicit in your, in the, in the whole book, the sort of subtext of the whole book is that, Reading is an art in the sense that, and it's it's part of the making of the work itself. You know, the work is there, but then you come to the work and you, um, you know, you make make it through your reading and through your attention. Um, but I did. There were um, some interesting kind of other ways of thinking about this as I was reading the book. And one is um, there's a great passage where you're sort of you're trying to help your son read the great Gatsby. That's sort of the through line of the book. And he's like breaking your balls by saying, you know, it's like, but he's secretly not even secretly, but he kind of loves the book. It's clear. He loves it. But you talk about, he loved um, it. It ended with a murder suicide. He was like, yeah. that's cool. But you <laughs> he was talk about he was 15. the physical <laughs> act of reading, of making notes, of annotating the book physically, of writing on the text that as being, and, and I thought, oh, that's another way that there's an art of reading. It's like really is almost like a visual art of like, you know, we all have our ways, you know, I don't know how much of that's been lost because, you know, a lot of the reading we do is on, is on screens, but there's still that thing. I mean, I even have it now, you know, like my, my, the book, you know, you have your own little systems that you've developed of like making notes and taking notes. And that was a cool in window into your reading process. Like the way you think about, you have a more, this minimalist way of making notes in preparation for teaching or whatever that you right. talk about or whatever, as opposed to, you know, his, he was sort of a beginning artist in a way. And he was almost like over 
Well, he was also being, he was in school, he was in ninth grade and his, his English teacher was requiring them to turn in their annotations. So he was not, he was performing in a way that was not his uh, natural milieu, right? He was not, he still is, I mean, I shouldn't, you know, he's, he's 24 now and he's not a reader particularly. That's not his lens, right? He's a visual artist. Um, And his theater guy. Theater guy, right? Lighting designer, and his and his um, and his argument was like this annotation that I'm doing is pulling me out of the story. Like I just want to have the experience. If I'm going to read the book, I want to have the experience of reading the book. And I, being um, how would I put it? I, I being a congenital corner cutter, um, I was like, well, there are all these kinds of ways you could finesse that, you know? Um, like just take some little notes and then go fill it in later. You know? He's like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. That's too much work. Um, he was also just a kid doing an assignment, right? right? So for him, it was like not particularly what he was interested in. He just wanted to get through it and move on to the next thing. Um, so I showed him my annotations. So, you know, I spent a lot of my, I have spent a lot of my professional life as a book critic and um, editor of, of book reviews. And so I was always annotating, um, you know, and I was an English major before that. So I was always annotating texts, but I'm also kind of lazy, in the sense that I don't want to physically, like my hand gets tired, and I also agree in a way, I don't want to get pulled out of the narrative, right? I want to read the text, but if I'm stopping every three lines to write like two sentences, then how do I experience the flow? So over the years, I've developed like a kind of shorthand, which is basically just like, you know, dashes and stars and underlines and just sort of scribbles and things like that. Um, often without words, or sometimes it'll just be like, you know, this or, you know, sight or whatever, right? That then I can go back through the book. What I've realized lately, in fact, in terms of talking about this a little bit, is that most of the time when I'm writing a piece of criticism, I I don't go back. I mean, I I go back and look, but most of the time that isn't so much, you know, I would have argued, and I think I probably did argue in the first edition of the book, that that was a way of reading to the writing, right? But in fact, it's actually a way of writing to the reading. And so the writing, the annotation, puts me in a zone where I'm paying closer attention and looking for different kind of through lines. Whether or not I actually revisit any of that stuff when when it comes time for me to write about that piece of, of work, maybe, maybe not. There's always way more notes and annotations, even in my vestigial scribbly way, than I would ever use um, in a in a critical piece, but it does allow me to kind of inhabit the piece of writing that I'm reading in a more active way, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I have that experience, you know, with poetry. Um, I have a tendency to drift away very quickly from the poem I'm reading. It's very hard for me to focus on it, and I find that if I write almost like with every line or even within the line, like little notes uh, that are almost sort of just descriptions of what I'm thinking when I'm reading. It keeps me so much more in the poem and it's not about being able to go back and look at it or, but it's just, it's just a way of staying with the poem and not drifting off into my own thinking. I mean, as a, as a, as a person who writes poetry, poet, I guess. Um, I think that's uh, what they call you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I have a tendency, the, the better the poem is, the more likely I am to stop reading it and want to go make my own poem. So it's very hard for me to finish. The better the book, the harder it is for me to read it. And so 
the only way I can force myself to do it and not force myself, but actually really enjoy these amazing books of poems is to write my way through them. Meaning like just, I mean, I, I did this, I remember having this with Frank O'Hara, Lunch Poems, a book that I've read many times, but have a lot of trouble remembering anything that's in it because it's so good. But like, I just, this time, the last time I read it, I just wrote, I wrote my way through it, you know, and then now I remember the poems a lot better. So I think that's part of the art of reading too. Yeah. I think Something else right. made me think about, uh, so I want to, you know, the, the book has a lot of sort of this, like, I don't, you know, kind of more old fashioned kind of like, uh, not old fashioned, it's not the right word, but sort of like trying to remind us of some of the older values of reading or some, some things that, but it's also, I think one of the things I loved about rereading the book that I, and, and, and noticing it was that, um, how, uh, willing you are to embrace other more contemporary ways of reading and thinking about reading. And so to just take the other side of this, there's a great um, discussion that you have about reading this book Sway by Zachary Laser, um, and then some other things you're reading. And then you talk about, um, and, and you talk and in, in doing that about how you were reading the book, but continually going to the internet and looking things up and looking up videos and looking up references or whatever. And then you talk also about you and your son sort of bonding over this website that's called uh, I Attend All Jay Gatsby's Parties which is about all these kids basically like talking about reading the great Gatsby and all these things, or whatever. So the way that the book expands into this social space of the internet and how that can also be a kind of art of reading, like, like understanding, like how that technology can give us something for, for a text, you know, not to be resisted or like frowned upon because it's newfangled and interfering with our reading, but to be, when, when thought of in the right way or when approached in a, in, in a generous way can really become part of the art of reading. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that interests me in the original writing was so technology had gotten in my way, but I'm not anti-technological by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I'm not, a, I mean, maybe I am, maybe, maybe I'm a Luddite in a way, but I'm not really a Luddite. Um, you're not that into technology. You're kind of like, I'm not, I mean, whatever, you know, I got a phone. You do have a phone. It's true. You have a phone. You have a phone. It's true. I post post on social media. I've seen you use a hotel key successfully. I've used, you know, I can, I know how to, I know how to like use Google maps. I'm not like, I'm, I'm I can, I can get by. You've gotten places. Right. I've gotten places. I, you know, it is true that I don't use ride share and things like that, but, um, but that's a whole, that's a subject for another conversation. Um, but anyway, um, what I was more interested in was how do we keep connected in an age of many different avenues, right? And so, um, you know, so I was really like, so when I was reading Sway, so Sway is a, a novel that Zachary Lazar wrote um, about the Rolling Stones in the 60s. And there's a lot of sort of cultural, right? I mean, he talks about, um, it talks about Altamont, but he also talks a lot about Kenneth Anger. Do you guys know Kenneth Anger's work? He was, a, um, I guess we call him like a Satanist filmmaker in the fifties and sixties in Los Angeles. Um, band. anyway, but his, he's a character in the, in the novel and Lazar describes a couple of Anger's films, which are sort of short indie, like eight 
minute, 14 minute films. Um, so they're all available. I mean, they're all up on YouTube. So as I was reading the novel, I would read his description of the novel. And then I thought, oh, I can go look at that. The thing that had given me that idea was I had right around that time, I had read a book about um, Robert Kennedy's campaign for president in 1968. And um, the writer of the book talked about the speech that Kennedy gave the night Martin Luther King was assassinated, right? Kennedy was in Indianapolis. He was advised not to speak. He said he was going to speak anyway. He spoke from the, black, the back of a flatbed truck. And it was the one time, I think, where he publicly talked about his brother's assassination. And he talked about, he quoted Aeschylus, which I realize we're in a different era. But, like, you know, God, give me a politician who can quote Aeschylus off the cuff from the back of a truck, you know? Like, I mean, we don't even have a politician who knows Aeschylus is at this point. But, um, but you know, he gave this five or six minute impromptu speech, right? Talking about you know his own family situation and um, the pain he had felt and the anger he knew the community was having. And whether or not this speech was the turning point, it is a historical fact that Indianapolis was one of the few cities in the countries that didn't um, that didn't go up, right? So, and the book talks about that as a cornerstone moment in that quixotic presidential campaign. Um, so I went and watched the film. I watched the news footage of the um, of the speech, and there was something really interesting about this triangulation process because all of a sudden I realized again this is 2007, so kind of right early days of social media, but kind of really pre-social media in the way that we use it now. I kind of realized like oh that like I can not only can I fa- I can fact check anything now, right? I can read an account of something and then I can watch the news footage or whatever, the, the coverage if, if I want to, and I can make my own determination. I can see a, f- a film or a video of what happened and I can decide whether I think the writer is telling me, um, is, is, is telling me, is, is describing it the way I see it happening. Um, and I was like, now we're all in, now we're in this really interesting conversation. Um, we're into a conversation where the reader is active, like really activated because the reader can find the source material in a really easy, I mean, you, you don't even have to look that hard, you know, just type in, you know, Robert Kennedy or type in, you know, Kenneth Anger or do whatever. It takes three seconds. And all of a sudden you've got all this information at your disposal. And there was something really exciting about that idea for, for me, certainly, um, as a reader. And those two books, I mean, there are others as well, but those two books really activated it. Yeah, it's very different because, you know, I remember how much I didn't know when I was reading, you know, when I was first becoming a reader in my life and, and uh, how I just accepted there were many things I didn't know. Um, and that that was an interesting experience and how different that is now and how I wouldn't feel that way. And if there wasn't something, if there was something I didn't know, I would go find out what it was, which is also an interesting experience. It's just a different, so kind of lamenting it or being, you know, being angry about the change just seems silly because it is different, but being aware of the difference is important because it is, it is, and something has been lost. I mean, I remember, I, you know, when I was first becoming a poet, um, I read a lot of, books by a lot of people. And I didn't know anything about most of those people. Often I didn't even know if they were alive or dead because I just picked up a book and there was some bio on the back, but it wasn't, it might've been a 20 year old book. I mean, for all I know, it died in the meantime, you know, and there was no way to like reach them or like even really, I mean, I could ask somebody if they were still, but it wasn't, that wasn't the way I thought about 
my them as writers. You know, I thought so the work became in a way it had a life outside of the life of the writer. Um, I think that's so different now. I don't think that feeling would ever be there. Is that better or worse? You know, I don't know. Is that does that allow some kinds of work more power and some kinds of work less power, and that those relations have changed? Probably yes, and that maybe is that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, it's just, but it has been this radical. It really is a radical change. You know, and I like that in the book, you kind of get both sides of this. You get like the sort of you you bring forth like the different different aspects of that kind of yeah. And also, I think it's important to remember books were hard to find. I mean, yeah, they were hard to find. Too. They were, that's, they that's were everywhere, also, right? Yeah. But like, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, and then I actually referred back to in the introduction, is 1984. Um, I went and I spent the summer um, sort of backpacking or Ural passing through Europe, right? And one of the things I did in Europe was buy a shitload of books that I couldn't get in the U.S. Um, because British editions were different, right? You know, there were English edition, English language European editions of all kinds of books that I couldn't find. So I basically spent most of my summer in Europe going to bookstores, going into different, you know, through different cities. Um, so many books, as I say in the book, that I, at the end of the summer I had to buy a suitcase to get them all home. Um, and then I got back to the U.S., um, got to the customs hall in Philadelphia where I was flying back into. Uh, customs agent opened up the, my suitcase with the books in it and was said, what are you doing with all these books? Um, which I kind of loved, right? In a certain way, right? Books, I was like, oh, you know, maybe he meant nothing by it, but maybe he did, I don't know. But I was like, oh, books can be dangerous, right? Uh, but, you know, there was something about the fact that, like, the revelation for me about being in Europe, um, because I am monomaniacal in that way, was far less seeing um, classical art and architecture, although I enjoyed seeing that too, than it was finding some, like, completely obscure translation by, you know, some British writer, some Scottish writer I had admired, you know, who died, you know, and, and whatever, right? Like finding those things because they were there. They weren't available at all in the U.S. because no U.S. publisher had them. And there was, it was difficult to get books that weren't published in the U.S. So that, too, that's another thing. Like, you know, we, I had to search for books. Um, and that is different, too. I mean, now I don't have to search for anything, right? If I don't remember... Um, I don't know what, let's just say, if I don't remember an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show, I can just Google it and watch it. I do sometimes, you know, or if I'm looking for a quote, um, you know, Nicholson Baker wrote that book about Updike, you and I, where he basically said at the beginning of the book, I'm not going to reread any Updike and I'm not going to read the books I haven't read because the book is not really about Updike. It's about my love for Updike and my love for Updike has to do with how I, how he exists in my imagination, which I think is a really interesting approach. Right. Um, but now I find myself, as an example, I'm always fact-checking quote. You know, like I'm always like typing in a quote. If I think it's, you know, I, I think I know who said it and, um, and I think I know how it's phrased, I'll always Google it to see what exactly it is, you know, and, and quote it correctly and, you know, maybe even cite the original source of it in a way instead of just, you know, whereas like 10 years ago I would have just been like, you know, as so-and-so once wrote. Now I'll be like, as so-and-so wrote in 1933 or whatever, you know, so that has changed things too. In some ways it makes the work more precise, which I like, but in another way it makes it less subjective or conditional, right, in, in, in a sense. Right. The infinite regression of the value of facts. Yeah. 
Um, I don't have to remember anything myself anymore because now my computer remembers it for me, which is useful since the older I get, the less I remember anyway. So, so um, I want to talk about the something that's at the heart of the book and the heart of our um, what we face as a society right now, which is the sort of possibility and danger of narrative of stories, which I think is such a, such a big part of what you're writing about here. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, I know that that really is a big subject that's, that's taken in different on in different ways, but um, you know, in the book you talk about how much we need narrative, both privately and collectively. And then you also talk about how, seductive and problematic narrative is how dangerous it is. Um, what can, can you talk a little bit about that for people who haven't maybe not read the book yet or I think, so I think we're right. We're narrative making animals. That's how we make, that's what we do, right? We make meaning again. I'll go back to the piece I read. I am a relativist in every single way. I don't believe in anything, um, so I think everything is a story that is a constructed story. I think, you know, family is a story. State is a story. Religion is a story. I think identity is a story, right? Identity is a, is a constantly changing fluid thing. It's, there's no, I don't believe, and I think current research is supports me on this, that there is no, identity is not fixed, right? So we're constantly kind of creating, whether consciously or otherwise, we're consciously creating narratives that, um, make sense of our existence in some way that show us something that um, we want to say about who we are, something that we find important. Um, we like to think about that. Certainly if we're teaching writing, we like to think about that as a positive, you know, what's the narrative? How do we build the narrative? What's, you know, what do you, but I also think there are a lot of dangerous narratives. Um, I think, well, first of all, let's go back to what I was talking about at the, at the beginning, right? A lot of the narratives, a lot of the writers who I loved when I was, coming up, the writers who really kind of turned me on to different ways of thinking were writers who were socially unacceptable, right? Writers my parents or my teachers would have been um, horrified at or what, you know, sort of the kinds of narratives they were talking about were sort of breakdown of kind of middle-class pieties like I was being educated in. So that is a way I think that narratives can be dangerous in a useful way, right? Because they crack us open a little bit. They let us see possibilities that weren't there. But sometimes those possibilities, right? So I talk a lot in the introduction about Charlottesville. Charlottesville is a narrative. Charlottesville is a toxic narrative, but it's a narrative nonetheless. The narrative of um, you will not replace us, right? That particular narrative is a toxic narrative, but it's a narrative that is increasingly um, compelling and popular in this country. So what do we do about that narrative? So I think it's important for us to think about narrative as a complicated question. It's necessary, but it's not always, um, we don't, it, we gravitate, different people gravitate to different narratives, right? And so, you know, so the Turner Diaries is a narrative. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a narrative. Mein Kampf is a narrative, right? Um, these are all narrative, um, I mean, these are all books in the world, right? And these are all narratives that push 
a kind of point of view or a perspective. Also, narrative is not neutral. Narrative is never neutral, right? We're telling narrative for a variety of reasons, not least of which is some kind of empowerment, whether we're talking about collective empowerment or whether we're talking about a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves so that we can feel empowered enough to like go out the door and go to work or you know, behave in the world. And so I think it's really important to think about the complexity of those issues, right? Empowerment is not always, um, there are certain narratives I don't want to have, I don't want to see empowered. Although I think once you've opened that Pandora's box, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think I'm, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, you got to the heart of the problem there. Um, I mean, if it's all just a matter of like competing narratives, then I think we've already lost. Right. Because, you know, you can't really, you know, if somebody's narrative is we're being replaced by immigrants and we need to, you know, fight for our white, you know, right. like, you know, identity or whatever, that's their narrative and you have a different narrative and you're just arguing about narratives, then that's, you know, then you've already lost. Right. So, and that's so the false equivalency of that's the, you know, there must be something else other than merely just like who's, which narrative appeals to you most. There must be something, but I think in order to get there, I think it's really important to understand the mechanisms of narrative yeah, and like the mechanisms of storytelling. Otherwise you're, because that really is at the heart of what's going on. Um, you know, right now. And I think you're very right to point that out in the book that, that, you know, there are a lot of narratives out there and some of them are destructive and, 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 and narrative is a seduction yeah. in some way. Right. right. I mean, if you think about like, think about your own experience as readers, right. You know, one of the things that a book does when it's working is it kind of, it kind of, it does kind of seduce you into it, right? You want to be sitting in that book. You want to be experiencing what the book is telling you. You want to be spending time with those characters. You want to be following that, that line. Right. And so it's, it is, it has to be emotional, right? I mean, you know, we, we think we talk about narrative or, you know, we're we're talking about it now, but we talk about it in terms of these big cultural things as if it's a kind of intellectual concept. But in fact, our response to it is entirely emotional. If you think about just on the most basic level, some of the stories that, you know, again, that all, like whoever, you know, the stories that each of you love the most, I mean, certainly in some way, the story, the the narratives that most move me often are because some, I fall in love with some element of them, right? I fall in love with a character. I fall in love with a question. I fall in love with language. Um, I fall in love with a point of view, right? So there is, you know, it's almost entirely emotional on some level. We definitely add intellectual overlays. So I think it is also the case that what I can, that those false narratives, right? You, you know, you will not replace us because it's going to be a white supremacist country, right? That's a false narrative, but there's an emotional reason people connect to that narrative. That's, that's the problem. And I don't know how we as, a country address that problem. It's actually not a false narrative. It's it's a great story. For I them, mean, it's, it's a fantastic story. It's a very powerful story. Um, it's it's a pernicious story. It's one that you know is destructive and evil. But it's but it's a great story. Um, and and that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> I and mean, it that's, stirs that, up that's, that emotional. So connection. I mean, I don't know. I'm a. I'm not. I don't write stories. I'm a. I'm a. I'm, I make poems, and so you know. So I, to me, it's about soul work, mm-hmm. and like I think that the soul work is has to be done, and then you, when you come to the stories, 
you have a sense of which narratives are going to lead you, however appealing they are and however like exciting they are, or, you know, they're going to lead you someplace where you don't want to live as a person because you're going to end up doing horrible things. And that's probably reductive, but like, I, I think that it's important maybe to separate oneself from the narrative mechanism because narrative, like, I mean, I'm not, you know, an Ayn Rand fan, but like a lot of people like those books, you know, they think they're good stories and they read them and they, they believe them and they become kind of monstrous because of them, you know? And like, that's, you have to, but you have to have some kind of resistance in yourself before those narratives. And, and, um, you know, that's, well, you have to have a moral core, know, I think. I think right. it's so soul work. I would, yeah. Soul work or moral work. I mean, I think the other thing to think about whatever. is right. Is that all art is manipulative, right? Right. Cause it doesn't exist. I mean, until somebody makes it, it's not like it grows naturally in the wild. So, um, you don't find it in a forest. So if someone has to make it, I and found my poems in a forest. So I, <laughs> I, I, found, just I think I found some of your poems in the forest. I just transcribe tree, tree talk. So, you know, so, yeah, but. But I was like, you know, I want, but so, like, yeah. so I'm okay with being manipulated, but I want to be manipulated well for good reasons in some way. Or it's like, you know, I would sometimes say to writing students, like there's good and bad manipulation, right? And, you know, good manipulation is when you're actually talking about, well, let's use your phrase, soul work or real emotion, Right. We all know postmodern construct that the piece of writing is a construction of, you know, slashes of ink on a sheet of paper that have absolutely nothing to do with what, you know, it's all representational. It's their representations of the things and that they are pulling at our heartstrings or whatever they're doing. But so make it real. Right. Make it work. If, if I'm being manipulated, then make then give me something. And. By that, I mean show me something real, right? I think the problem for me, the problem with those pernicious narratives is that they go back to that sense of they simply reinforce your prejudice and pre, you know, one's prejudice and preconception. And they don't ever, there's no challenge, right? There's no, they're just sort of, they're easy. And, you know, it's easy to fall into that narrative. It's easy to feel aggrieved, right? All people feel aggrieved, I'd be, you know, I mean, I go through, I'd say about 50% of the time I feel aggrieved. Um, not about that stuff, but about other stuff, about those people maybe, <laughs> but, right? So, um, so I think like, you know, so what, if we're going to talk about that, then what is the point of narrative or what is the point of art? Is it to reinforce our grievances or is it to somehow connect us to something bigger than ourselves? I think I'm just repeating what you're saying. And at the risk of sounding like an idealist, which is a phrase I utter more and more each day, I prefer to believe that the value of narrative is to give us something that is bigger than us, even or especially if that makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, when you say show me something real, I think to myself, what is real is our human consequences. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference between... You know, and there are many appealing narratives that are that allied human consequences, and then there are ones that don't. And that's probably maybe that's not a bad place to start. As if you're in a narrative that you know is seems to not be that interested in the the actual suffering of human beings um, and their individual pain and what actually happens when you do certain things, then that narrative might be 
a seduction that is worth resisting. You know, that's, you know, that's, but that's tough. I mean, you have to just be, be a good reader. And that brings me back to, you know, what I really think this book is about is about being a good reader, being an aware reader, thinking through the narratives that you're being confronted with, you know, and I, I think it's, you know, we, we were talking in the, in the, I don't, it doesn't matter. We were talking in a different room before we came in here. I, I don't know why I felt a need to describe the room we were in. Um, but, uh, but, uh, we, were talking about Nos, we were talking about Nausgaard or Nausgaard actually is how you pronounce his name. But, um, but, um, you know, the, the Norwegian writer who wrote this, my struggle, Mein Kampf, my struggle, this, 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 this auto fiction, you know, 36,000 pages of like of, about his life. But I think he ultimately and many other writers are struggling with this idea that narrative, how can we wriggle out of or escape this construct of narrative to, to get to something more real or get to something more present? And, you know, a lot of people criticize him for being narcissistic or being only interested in his kind of like white cis male perspective or whatever, but like, which is maybe true. But like, I think that there is something about what he's trying to do about blowing up the whole idea of like how, of what a novel is. And, and, but many, many writers have done that. And I think it's, I think what we've been talking about in our kind of like halting, you know, back and forth sort of way is like, it really gets at the heart of what contemporary fiction is facing right now. It's like, if it's just about telling a seductive story, why is that any different from propaganda or advertising? Like what's, what's the difference? Like, why is this, if, couldn't that just be an evil thing as well as a good one? And is the only difference like, you know, how, how seductive you are, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. So people, I think want to fight back against that. And I think that's explains the proliferation of these forms that are more of auto fiction. I think people are, I think as a, people who write fiction sense in a very visceral way, the danger of, of unexamined narrative. And I think that's you a know, really good point because if you look at Nausgaard, has anyone in here read any of the Nausgaard stuff? My, my, my struggle. No. Okay. So anyway, right. So it is a 3,600 page, <laughs> six volume novel about the minutia of one person's life by and large, um, which is actually kind of the genius of it. And right. In a lot of ways, right. There's, um, doesn't sound that appealing when you in describe the, it. Right? So uh, yeah, now I'm going to sell it by, you know, now I'm going to sell it, it by so. unselling it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, like the, 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 at the beginning of the second one, there's a description of a four-year-old's birthday party. He takes his four-year-old. He's got kids. He's yeah, got so kids. So he takes his four-year-old to a birthday party. Kid does not want to be at the birthday party. He does not want to be at the birthday party. But he wants the kid at the birthday party because he's trying to teach her how to be socialized. And then when the birthday cake comes, it's, um, it's vegan, right? It's like got no flour, no sugar. And Nausgaard, the narrator, who's been basically sitting at this horrible birthday party for like, it's 75 pages long, this section on the yeah. kid's birthday party. So he's been sitting there for 75 pages. And then, you know, they have the audacity to bring out this vegan cake. And he's like, oh man, you know, I waited here. Like my kid's miserable, I'm miserable. And you can't even give me a good cake, you know? And there's something on the one hand that seems really, really trivial about that, right? But on the other hand, you know, as a veteran of many four-year-olds birthday parties, not trivial at all. He nailed it in that sense. And what he's, you know, and so I think in that sense, what he's doing, which is really interesting to me, 
really interesting to me as a writer, um, also as a reader, but really interesting to me as a writer is to basically create narrative out of these small moments that we ordinarily don't think of in terms of narrative, right? Like there's so much of, of um, the narrative moments in Nausgaard are moments that we, that, that we would traditionally, if we can use that word in construction of narrative, overlook, right? They're the inter- it's the interstitial stuff. You know, the birthday party shouldn't be the, the sort of, you know, this massive sort of epic set piece. It should be something, you know, or, or, or we've been conditioned to expect that it wouldn't be something that he would give that much time and attention to because who really cares about a four-year-old's birthday party? But if you're at that four-year-old's birthday party, it's where you are, so you do care about it. And also, why can't a four-year-old birthday party become the framework for a kind of existential set of questions, which is what arises out of that party. That's where I think he, that's, I mean, that's one of the things I think he does so brilliantly. Um, You know, he's giving us narrative even where we don't expect it. And in some ways he's sort of seducing us by anti-seducing, right? He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to bore you so much you're going to fall in love with me, right? You know, or whatever it is. But See, there I told is, you he was going to sell the book. Right. There's something really interesting about the way that that works and the way that it kind of plays against our expectation. You know, if you had – I didn't know that that was in that book. Now I've probably prevented you all from reading it. It's in the second volume. It's at the beginning of the second volume. Um, you know, if someone had said, oh, there's this amazing 75-page set piece about a birthday party, I would have been like, not possible, right? So there is something really interesting there, too, about the unexpected, because at a certain point, you know, you're, and I think you're right about being a conscious reader, at a certain point, you're in it as a reader, just kind of experiencing it. But as a conscious reader, your conscious mind is kind of going like, let's see how long he can pull this off, you know? And, you know, because this is, you know, after a while, you're like, oh, we're like 40 pages in, now we're 50 pages in. There's something really engaged and active about that reading process, because precisely because we don't exactly know what's going to happen or what he's doing. He's doing something we haven't seen before. And so that's kind of fascinating. Right. There was a review of the sixth volume of um, My Struggle in the New York Times book review, Sunday book review. And it was such a funny review because it was, um, it was pretty interesting. And this guy was having some thoughts. Mendelssohn um, was having some thoughts. And then at the end he becomes, it's, I recommend you check it out because the the last part of the review is so conservative. It 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 sort of criticizes Knausgaard for not making a book that sort of allows us to connect with him on a human level, which is sort of like going to a Picasso show and criticizing him for not making faces where like the eyes are like on one side of the face. You know, it's like you know, it's like I hated this show because the eyes were on two sides. You know, it's like it's so conservative his view of like what art and literature are for and it brings me back again to your book which is like tries to open up this 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 art of reading which is really about accepting because really art i mean okay now i'm going to become a pompous jackass but like really art i mean become you know continue <laughs> to be one but like but you know isn't isn't art really about you know coming without preconceptions to something and approaching it in a, in a creative uh, state of mind and engaging with it dynamically. And that's, that's when I, when I think about the lost art of reading, I think that that is the art that we are always in danger of almost losing this dynamic, creative, um, engagement with text. And that is what we need both with the art we love and with the art that we should rightfully be suspicious of. So anyway, thanks so much everybody for being here. And thanks to the 
California uh, Institute for the Investigation of Integral Situations. No, thanks to, to CIS. It was a great institution. I know people have, have studied here and gotten great degrees from here, and it's, and and they've hosted us so so uh, in such a lovely way. And thanks to everybody for being here, and thanks to David, and thanks to. David. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>